You feel pretty safe there in the comfort of your home or vehicle, protected from the creatures of the night. But what you may not know is, there is no safe place when it comes to the wild things. There have been reports of distant sightings of a Sasquatch in a field as you drive by. But then something mysterious, terrifying, sprints across the street in front of your moving vehicle. And in a flash, it's gone just as quickly as it appeared. Maybe you've heard of strange animal mutilations taking place, but those are far from you, right? On a farm or perhaps a ranch somewhere remote. But what happens when these phantoms of the forest start infringing on our safe places? Be it bipedal hairy hominids, slithering water serpents, mysterious giant flying creatures, or large dog-like beings seen lunging towards you on its two hind legs, or something unseen stalking you, following your every move. It appears there's no place left on Earth that's immune from these experiences. Have we finally encroached upon their domain so much that they have no other resort than to lash out? making themselves seen or terrorize the people of a small town. Today we explore this topic, the vampire beast of Bladenborough and other creepy creatures, with our guests Chad Lewis and David Weatherly. Plus, actor-comedian Jamie Kaler comes by to warn us of an impending cataclysm. And we revisit one of my all-time favorite cryptid encounters. All that and more, right here on the Paranormal 60 with Dave Schrader. I'm not gonna stand here and listen to this baloney. He won't know. He doesn't stand for baloney. Sounds like a lot of supernatural baloney to me. Supernatural. Perhaps. Baloney, perhaps not. All right, before we get launched off into tonight's program, I do want to talk about a cool new show. It just premiered on the Stars Network on March 6th. It's a brand new program called Shining Veil. It stars Courtney Cox, Greg Kinnear, Mira Sorvino, and Sherilyn Fenn. This looks like a real winner. If you've had a chance to see it, let me know. I'd love for you to email me, Dave, at Paranormal60.com and tell me what you think. For those of you that are not familiar with the series, let's take a quick look at the trailer. Hey, guys, this move is really going to be great for us. Probably not. Are you us? No, we're not you. Let's go check it out. Welcome to Shining Vale. Really cold in here. Does the heat work? I mean, the house has been empty for nearly two years. She's probably not used to having people inside of her. Pat is a writer. I haven't written anything meaningful in seven years. I've been in a really dark place lately. My kids ignore me. Terry's at work. I'm hoping that being out in the country is going to help me find my muse again. If we don't get the first chapter next month, I want the advance back. No pressure. Patricia, what are you doing in my house? Pat's seeing ghosts. Not 
ghosts? One ghost. Good news, we're not crazy. There are dark forces in that house. Wear this medal. I'm not really a saint person. Put it on! Okay? Wonderful. Use your words, Patricia. And keep it filthy, that's your brand. All of a sudden, I wrote 13 pages. I don't remember writing. I'm good. I found my muse. Okay, put the axe down. Did you write those pages? We wrote them together. You wrote suck a hot Suck a hot That was all you, darling. Let's get crazy. This looks fantastic, fun, interesting, and a lot of great actors. So make sure you check out Shining Veil on the Stars channel. And again, if you've seen it and you have some thoughts on it, email me, Dave, at Paranormal60.com and tell me what you think. While Courtney was out promoting the new series, she stopped by Entertainment Tonight to talk about uh, the series. And the reporter asked her if she's ever had any paranormal experiences of her own. And while she's out on the road filming or or doing any of this, and she said, what about right here in my own home? And she began to tell him a little story about the fact that there is a spirit in the house. And she was actually nervous talking about this case because she didn't want the spirits to hear her, which I thought was really interesting and telling. And she said she even considered maybe she was hallucinating it or, or it wasn't real. But then... She said one day when she answered the the door and uh, a UPS driver was there, he actually witnessed the same spirit that she kept encountering. So it's pretty uh, pretty remarkable. Uh, pretty cool story. I thought I'd at least mention that to you. Uh, go check out the new series, Shining Veil. All right, it's time now for our first guest. He's a longtime friend, Chad Lewis. And Chad is a researcher, author, and lecturer on topics of the strange and unusual. With a background in the field of psychology, earning both a bachelor's and master's degree in that field. But for nearly 30 years now, he's traveled the globe in search of unique and bizarre stories in history. Welcome to the Paranormal 60, our good friend, Chad Lewis. Chad, it's always good to catch up with you, buddy. How you doing? Hey, greetings from the Northwoods of Wisconsin. <laughs> it's good to see you. I'm excited that uh, we're able to, to be here together and, and talk about some weird characters that are out there. As I said in the opening, we seem to be, I don't know, encountering more and more bizarre beings that that seem to defy explanation from historical characters to uh, wolf-like creatures, Sasquatch, Chupacabra, gnomes, elves, strange things that in America we've kind of pushed off as just insanity, but more and more people are experiencing this. So let's start with some of your favorite, very unusual encounters and stories that you've collected for us from around the world. Where, uh, where are we off to first? Just before the pandemic, I was lucky enough to be up in Canada in the northwestern corner of Alberta, and I was there uh, tracking what many people think is the most fearsome legend ever to set foot in North America, the cannibalistic monster called the Wendigo, this giant beast that would show up during times of famine when game was nowhere to be found and food was scarce and people were starving. That's when the Wendigo would show up and either terrorize you and devour you, or worse yet, it would possess you and turn you into this cannibalistic monster 
that wanted to kill and eat your family. And I was up in Alberta tracking perhaps the most infamous case of a Wendigo of all time, a Cree Indian named Swift Runner, who back in the 1870s went mad and set off in the winter. Um, as most communities did up there, they spread out in the winter to make sure everybody had enough game to survive. Right. You couldn't do it in a, a simple area. So he took off with his wife and their six children and his brother and mother. And things were going great. They were hunting bear, they were hunting moose, and then the food ran out. And slowly he started losing his mind, where eventually he ended up killing his entire family. But not only that, he started to devour them, even snapping the bones and sucking out the marrow of their uh, bodies and skinning them, putting them in cauldrons, just nasty, nasty stuff perhaps the most gruesome thing of all time. And now was he doing this one at a time? So he was feeding the remaining family members, their children or, or mother or whatever he had called together for that meal. This for me is the most devastating part of the whole scenario that he split off with his family. One son refused to leave him. And that was the first uh, child that he uh, disposed of and consumed. And then unfortunately, he did meet up with the rest of his family and took care of all of them except his youngest boy, who was seven at the time, and made the boy, basically, I don't know how detailed you want to get, but made the boy consume his siblings and his mother. Oh so throughout God. the winter, it was just those two, and then spring came. And at this point, Swift Runner, who was 40 winters of age at the time, was able to start shooting ducks and other prey. Food was plentiful. And for some reason, at that moment, you know, I put myself in the shoes of that seven-year-old boy. The last remaining member of the family, he had to have known he was next. But there was nothing he could do. His main protector in the world was the biggest threat, the killer. And right. Swift Runner claimed he had gone crazy and that evil, the Wendigo, had taken him over and he had this compulsion to kill and eat his family. There was nothing he could do. So at the very end, when food was plentiful, he still took the life of his last son. <sighs> then he walked into town that spring and claimed, my family all starved to death. What a terrible winter. But townsfolk recognized that he looked healthier than ever. You know, he was strapping well over six feet tall, 200 pounds. He didn't look like he had just weathered a winter in the Northwoods. So they were suspicious. So the uh, authorities had them, had Swift Runner lead them back to his winter quarters. And that's when they found this thing out of a B-horror movie. And he was brought back to Fort Saskatchewan, put on trial, and his life was taken at the end of a rope. Uh, when they constructed the gallows, the first legal hanging in the Northwest Territory of Canada. And then his body was simply dumped on the edge of the fort where nobody knows what happened to it after that. And he's considered one of the most infamous legends of a Wendigo possessing someone and forcing them into cannibalism. What's interesting is we, we just touched on the Wendigo on last week's episode. Um, Tyree Asinto, uh, a Native American that I, I'm friends with and was on an episode of Holzer Files with me, talked a little bit about these characters. But they it seemed that it was more of a curse upon the white man that was screwing over the indigenous people and that they would be the ones driven mad. Was this something that maybe started in the tribes, that they would see these people that were 
doing horrible things, they were the ones that became possessed by the Wendigo? Well, it started out as the First Nation spirit or legend, and then it quickly spread not only to through Canada, but through the Great Lakes region of the United States. And it initially was a First Nation legend, and but anyone who knows the history of Canada and the Great Lakes knows that there were other cultures there as well later. Fur traders, missionaries, the French explorers, and they all started to put their own spin on the Wendigo legend. But we have documented dozens and dozens of cases where people were actually turning to a Wendigo and they begged their friends and family to kill them because they did not want to become a Wendigo. And oftentimes, these were Native and First Nations people. And when the white law enforcement found out about it, they saw it as murder. But the tribes people said, if we wouldn't have killed this person, they would have become a Wendigo and consumed the entire village, town, community. So they thought they were doing something good, but it was seen different with the white law of the time. It's interesting, right? Because this sounds like the the germination or or the genesis of the modern zombie story, right? One person becomes infected and starts infecting others. And we did a review on Antlers, which is a Wendigo movie. Um, I did that review with, with Shane Pittman last week on the show. And that movie I thought was fascinating, a very dark psychological thriller that really I thought played horror and psychology psychology nicely together. But looking at it, it does feel almost like a, a zombie type of scenario. A lot of people have made that case because not only did they look at maybe it was a mental illness that they classified as Wendigo psychosis, but also have speculated that there might have been some bug or some disease that was going through that would cause you to become a Wendigo and lose your mind. And uh, it's very tricky because a lot of the symptoms of somebody turning Wendigo paralleled quite a bit with mental illness symptoms. They mm -hmm. are withdrawn. They have no energy, personality changes. But what's different about Wendigo turnings is that all of a sudden people start seeing their friends and family, not as loved ones, but as tasty game like beaver and moose. And they say, we're going to eat you. And that in fact, they had to be uh, tied down and restrained from consuming their friends and loved ones. Jesus, what a horror story. All right, from Wendigo, where are we off to next? We're going to come back to the United States and chase some hellhounds. Hellhounds? Uh, right. <laughs> hellhounds, devil dogs, these phantom patrollers of you know gates to hell. Um, right outside of my hometown in Wisconsin is a small cursed island called Mary Dean. It has a boat landing there. It's abandoned today. Um, but it's thought to be haunted by a young girl by the name of Mary Dean who drowned in the river and then her body was buried on the island. And many people claim she acts like a siren in the water trying to entice you in to help her. And if you do, she'll pull you under and you'll meet your watery grave and spend eternity there. But mm. there's also stories of hellhounds on the island and the boat landing. So after a program I was doing on haunted places, a gentleman came up to me after the program and he was a big burly biker guy you know the type of guy you wouldn't think would get spooked by anything and he came up and he started shaking telling me his story of going out to see the ghost of mary dean him and a couple of his buddies took their motorcycles on a road trip there they got there just after dark 
And he had no idea about the hellhound stories. But as soon as he got there, he told me he was surrounded by hellhounds. And when I asked him, why do you think they were hellhounds and not just wild black dogs? And he said three things stood out to him. One, these things were nearly transparent. He could see right through them. Two, they had glowing red eyes, not a light shine or a reflection of light, but the light was emanating from the creature. Now, this image, for those of you watching uh, along, this is the image that the eyewitness actually gave you, right? Yes. Uh, you know, heavily built, the size of a, a bear, but shaped more like a, a dog of some sort, or even a wolf, if you will, but pure black with that piercing red eyes emanating from the creature. The it last like thing Gozer, that, the or not Gozer, but the Keymaster or uh, one of those characters. That's a freaky looking beast. Straight out of folklore, the movies of Hollywood, some creation. Right. And the last thing that really terrified him is they were so spooked, they said, we're getting out of here. So they get on their bikes, they speed out, but he said these things followed them. And no matter how fast they went on the bikes, the things kept up with them. And it wasn't until he went to kick one that his big biker boot went right through it and it finally disappeared. And he was so frightened, he said they did not stop driving until they hit the safety of a nearby town about 20 miles away. And he claimed he would never go out to that area again. And he's not alone. Numerous people claim that this place is plagued by these mysterious devil dogs, you know, doing the devil's work, these sinister beings that are often thought to be death omens or a harbinger of death, that if you see them, it means death is following you very closely. This is the actual location for those of you watching the video. This is the location where these uh, beasts were encountered, correct? Yes, it's out in the middle of nowhere. At one time, the island was inhabited. It had a post office and many businesses. And unfortunately, many people drowned at that spot every year. And when I've talked to their friends and family, they told me the person was drawn there for some unknown reason. They had never been there before. They had a mm. calling and they went out there and lost their lives uh, in the waters of the river. Very strange. All right. I know we can't do this without talking about a Sasquatch encounter, right? So what have you got for us in the realm of Sasquatch? One of my... Now, Bigfoot and Sasquatch are all the rage today. Everybody loves going out, looking for them, hunting after them, researching them. But sometimes they have a more sinister effect to them. And that's when I received a call from a woman, native woman up on a reservation in the Northland. Uh, they had been experiencing weird things in this rural neighborhood. Families missing their pets, pet chickens, people raising puppies, all gone missing. And one night, uh, her young teenage son, who at the time was a security guard, a very big man, over six feet tall and heavily built, uh, was going out to the car when he saw something across the street crouched down by the cornfield. And then this terrible odor overcame him a stench of uh, like rotting food and sulfur. So he goes back into the house to get a flashlight and he comes out and flashes the light across the street and he sees this thing stand up and he said it dwarfed him. But amazingly, even though it was covered in hair and your traditional Sasquatch looking thing, this witness said it appeared to be more afraid of the witness than the witness was of it. And it ran into the woods, crunching, crashing trees, breaking limbs of the tree limbs. 
And the young man thought, great, it's gone. We're fine. We're safe. But later that night, his mother was getting up early to make breakfast for her daughter who had friends over for a sleepover. And while she was in the kitchen, she looked out the window and peeking into her daughter's room, she saw a very tall, thin, hairy man. She said it reminded her of the Planet of the Apes creature, which the Tim Burton one had just come out about a year prior to that. Okay. That's what it reminded her of. Hmm. And then it looked at her and ran off so fast she thought it couldn't possibly be human. And she thought it was the creature that her son had seen the night before. Well, a few more sightings. They found tracks, scratches on the outside exterior of their home. Eventually, they moved out of the place. They were so afraid to live there. But the curse began because that teenage boy believed he had seen the Sasquatch and it cursed him. Bad luck seemed to happen to him everywhere. He lost his job. He was involved in a minor car accident. And then he went to a, a house party and he went to sit down on a chair and there was a gun there. So he went to move it and it accidentally went off and it fired and struck a young mother walking down the steps at the party, killed her. And he actually was sent to prison for it and then was released. But the curse continued. After 20 years from their first uh, reaching out to me, I tried to contact him again to see what his thoughts were on this story now, 20 years later. Right. And I couldn't get in touch with him because he was back in prison for more bad luck. It seemed like his life fell apart after that Sasquatch sighting. And the family truly were convinced that it was something of mishap, misfortune, and ill uh, luck that was brought on by this Sasquatch. All right, uh, folks, David Weatherly will be joining us in just a little bit as we talk about The Vampire Beast of Bladenboro, uh, a new documentary that he's worked on and a very chilling story about a town being plagued by these uh, this unbelievable creature. So we'll get into that in a little bit. Chad Lewis, our guest right now. And uh, Chad, this next character is new to me. I had never heard of this, and I, I'm not even going to try the name again. What is it? The Tata Duende. Tata Duende. Okay. So talk to me about the Tata Duende. What is the, the basic history of this? And is it considered a, a, a cryptid or is it considered more of like an, a, a fae or a, an elf-like creature? I think the debate is we don't know. It's considered creepy is what it's considered. Now, outside of Central and South America, a lot of people haven't heard of the Duende. It's a human-looking diminutive creature uh, usually reported to be wearing a giant hat or a sombrero. Oftentimes, its feet are turned backwards so nobody can track it, although everybody knows that its feet are turned backwards, so that shouldn't <laughs> be a problem. But it's thought to be a protector of the rainforest and the jungles in South America and Central America. And when I was traveling through uh, Belize, I was at what would be equivalent of a national park here in the United States, and I was talking to a park ranger who asked why we were uh, traveling through the rainforest that day. And I said, I'm looking for the Tata Duende. And the young man who was in his late 20s, early 30s went white as a sheet. And he said, why are you doing that? We don't, we stay away from the Duende. Crazy American, what are you doing? As you all too well know, Dave, that a lot of the other cultures in the world consider these legends in a much more serious tone than right. we do 
here in the US. You know, when you go looking for the weird, the weird will come looking for you. Right. And so I was used to that. And I said, Oh, I'm just fascinated by the Duende legend. And he really insisted that I not go look for it. So I thought there was something more to the story. And it turns out he had an experience as a young boy that really scarred him with the Duende. He was playing out in his backyard in a very rural area that butted up against the forest. And he saw the Duende. Now, the Duende is thought to have no thumbs, which is why you'll see a photo of me holding up four fingers. Because if it sees you have a thumb, it will come and try to tear it off of you because it's jealous you have a thumb. But he saw this thing on the edge of the forest when he's playing in the yard by himself. And it, a small man, big uh, sombrero, standing just on the edge of where he could be protected. And he's creepily motioning for the kid to come with him uh, like this. And the kid said all of a sudden he heard some singing or music reminiscent of fairy folk, obviously. And he was put in some sort of trance and started unwillingly walking toward this duende in the woods. And as he got about halfway there, his mother stuck her head out the door and yelled for him to come home for dinner. He said this snapped him out of this trance and he was in tears and he ran back to his mother's house saying the Duende was trying to capture him. Usually the Duende is said to take people who are not being respectful of the earth. If you're in the jungle or in the rainforest and tearing things down and not showing any type of respect, it will come after you, take you to its lair and you'll never be heard from again. But Many believe it's a trickster type form, like the fairy folk uh, has supernatural powers that it's not just some weird hermit living in the woods, scaring people on its own. You know, the wild man of the woods explanation. And to that day, he was terrified and he sincerely did not want me looking for this creature so much so that he insisted that when I came back from the rainforest, I checked back in with him to make sure that I had survived. Now, I, the image that I have up on the screen, this is a lot of what these creatures look like in, in tellings of the story uh, between like a gnome-like character, literally like the garden gnome-looking character with the pointy hat and the beard, el very elfin, to, to more monstrous creatures like this. So is it a trickster? Is it changing shape? And do you believe that these are truly beings or are they a projection of Gaia itself, of, of that part of the land, protecting it, trying to scare people off from that area. Every time I think it might be a flesh and blood creature that you could, you know, encounter, hunt, trap, deer, moose, whatever. It, they do things that make you think there's no way it could be flesh and blood, even though on some occasions it leaves prints, it might leave droppings, it might leave hair behind, but on other occasions it will do things of supernatural ability, disappear right into thin air. Or all of a sudden start singing and put someone in a trance like like the fairy folk were known to do. And others, the uh, trickster type. Or it's just that explains kind of Justin scary. Bieber. Yeah. It's Very just, small, diminutive, and sings people into a weird lulling <laughs> state. Yeah, and affects so many millions of people. So That's crazy. you wonder. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I'm split on this because on the one hand, they do seem to be here in the way we think of known animals. But on the other hand, they're not. Uh, at least not in any way or capacity right. we think of. All right. Our final story, 
uh, this is, of course, they made a movie about this a few years ago. And I'm not going to, uh, again, attempt this because everybody laughs at me every time I try to say la 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 But you've got a, a creepy tale to tell on this. So uh, before we say goodbye, introduce us to this story and how it came to your uh, attention. In America, La Llorona, um, usually and in other places, the usual story is that she's this murderous mother who either killed her children or drowned them. And as a curse, she's forced to walk the riverbanks and water uh, sides looking for her children as some sort of penance for her crimes. But in Central America, they see her a little bit different, that she appears along the riverbanks as a beautiful woman and tries to lure men into the woods where she turns into a gigantic snake and devours them. And when I was staying down there in a monkey sanctuary in the middle of nowhere, no electricity. Um, <laughs> I just love how you just say, I was staying there in a monkey sanctuary. Like that's just a normal part of living, Chad. <laughs> what well, is on this adventure? But it turned into the scariest thing that ever happened to me. And it's because it illustrates how yeah, there, there's a... a, a showing of the remoteness of this. And it shows how the atmosphere and the environment can really affect you. So I wanted to take uh, a riverbank tour at night to see this woman, but the only thing offered was a midnight crocodile tour. So we show up, uh, my companion and myself, and all we have are these little headlamps and it's pitch black, darkest I've ever seen. And we show up and the river's flooded. So we have to take our small little canoe, which I wouldn't float in my pool in Wisconsin, um, and wade through the river that's infested by crocodiles. So we're up to hip, uh, hip level, and we finally get in the canoe, which is topsy-turvy, right on the water. And the guide that night, who they speak English, but they have a super cool Jamaican accent, so it's okay. hard to tell what they're saying, but he said, don't worry, don't worry. My brother and I fish in this river all the time. In fact, National Geographic just came here to do a documentary on us. Well, I know enough about National Geographic that they only do the weird stuff. So right, right. here I am. And I don't know if I was more afraid of seeing all the crocodiles in the river or La Llorona. And I didn't end up seeing her, but I was so frightened. I mean, just white knuckled on the paddle where... I even said to my companion, I said, if you're too afraid and you want to go back, I won't hold it against you. Oh, you were hoping, hoping that they'd bail so that you could say <laughs> look face. like you were being supportive. Right. Sure. You know, and people, the, the most common question I receive is, do you ever get scared on these adventures? And I always say that if you're not getting scared, you're not trying hard enough because these are downright creepy places. So now was this area known for La Llorona as well for her? visage to be seen there? Yes. Uh, according to a lot of the locals I was speaking of uh, with, they told me that years ago, several men were lost into the woods and they blamed it on La Llorona. Again, she devours them in a giant beast-like serpent, which didn't equate into the water. There were no river legends of giant sea serpents outside of, you know, the 14-foot crocodiles in the right. water. But I think it's the scaredest I've ever been. And it's not because I witnessed something paranormal, but just the atmosphere, the conditions right. all came together. And I think for a lot of people, that's the most intriguing part for them, how they felt rather than what they actually saw. Chilling stuff. It's always great to catch up with you, Chad. I appreciate this. Uh, before you head off, 
anything you need to promote any new books any new stories uh documentaries anything people should be watching out for no keep an eye out go to the weirdest spot you can think of you'll find me there excellent it's always good to catch up with you chat thank you so much for stopping by today take care my friend uh all right folks listen a few weeks back i talked about one of my favorite creature encounters and uh it is, I'm going to be honest with you, it is one of the most bizarre stories I'd ever heard in my entire life. And it mixes many different genres, uh, but with a, a, a sense of humor. This is a, a true claim from the mailbag of the macabre. This is one of our scare shares that was sent in. And uh, I, I narrated the story and our friend Bart L created what I like to call a bartoon. And he kind of animated the story on this. David Weatherly will be joining us on the other side of this in the break. And uh, we'll continue with the Vampire Beast of Bladenborough. But uh, for your enjoyment, ladies and gentlemen, this is Strange Bedfellows. I've been working on cattle ranches for the better part of my life, going on 30 plus years at this point. My story takes place in the mid-90s, and I can honestly say, I ain't never seen anything like it before or since. The ranch I was helping work had some issues with a few of the cattle dying or just plain vanishing. I was asked to keep an eye on things at night, the best I could. It was an easy job and I liked being alone, so that was the perfect job for me. Peace, quiet, and great outdoors. You just can't ask for more. After working the ranch for a few months without incident, my luck finally ran out. I'd been in the boardhouse working my way through a late dinner when I was alerted to the herd making some weird noises. Nervous sounds like like maybe a coyote had found its way a bit too close to him. One of the cows started making some real weird noises, very distressing sound. So I grabbed my rifle off the mantle and slipped out into the dark to see what was going on. I made my way across the yard and through a small feed barn. I wanted a good vantage point to see what was causing all the commotion. I climbed to the top and looked out the open loft door. I could see quite a few of the cows had moved to one side of the small fenced-in portion of the field, milling about, mooing, and whatnot like they were real uncomfortable with something. That's when I saw something very strange. There was this tall fella standing there, cradling the head of one of the cows. He was in front and had her head lovingly between his big hands. Now when I say this fella was big, I mean B-I-G big. He looked like he was well over seven, maybe even eight feet tall, stooped a bit, and just a sweet talking that cow. I could hear these low sets of, I guess you'd describe them as grumbles and whatnot, and the cow he was holding just let out a few passive sounding moves. That's when this big fella, moves around the backside of the cow and well it starts having relations with one of my damn cows he weren't wearing no clothes and was hairy as hairy as can be i was realizing i was seeing one of them bigfoot creatures and he was actually having relations with a cow in my field i didn't know quite what to do so i raised my rifle and fired off around before the big guy could this startled the herd and the big guy, his head it whipped around looking for where that shot came from. The cows were mooing loudly now and moving around, even more nervously than they had been. My shot seemed to work as he stopped his courting with my cow and took off in a dead sprint. 
The poor fellow must have been hurting as he took off. I could hear some hooting and grumbling as he made his way across my field. And damned if that creature didn't just kind of effortlessly hurdle the fence and scramble away. <laughs> About a week or two passed without any weirdness. Then came the night of lights. It was overcast and the clouds were dark and threatening. I could see bright white and blue lights rolling through a patch of clouds like heat lightning or something. I'd seen that before, but this was different. This was centered over just a part of the pasture and pulsed and flickered. Then a white hot blinding flash of light struck the ground and a thunder crash in the air. And I yelled out, well, hot damn! That was pretty extreme and intense to see. Then, as quick as the flash of flight and flickering stopped, like it had all been used up in that one blast. I didn't think nothing of it and figured the storm must have just kind of blown itself out. A few days later, I went for a horseback ride out into the field where I saw the light, and there was that same cow that I'd seen with Bigfoot laid out on the ground and looking all messed up. It didn't look like it was hit with no lightning, it looked like it had been carved up like one of them cow mutilations. I shook my head and saw the scorch marks in the grass surrounding the cow where it had been laid out like something from a crime scene. I talked about it with the ranch owners and I brought them out to see. They just shook their heads in disgust and said they would handle it. That's when I told them about the seductive Sasquatch thing I'd seen just a few weeks ago. They looked at me like I had three heads. The owner looked at his brother and said, plain as day, Well, they're at it again. The two shared a knowing look, and that was that, I guess. Now, they never thought fit to explain a damn thing to me, and I wasn't about to ask, but I was told next time not to shoot to scare, but shoot to kill. But they never explained beyond that. And all the time I worked there, I never saw the hairy Casanova again. But I heard them cows getting worked up on a few occasions. I think he was around looking for love in all the wrong places, but knew we were waiting on him, so he never did strike again. At least ways, not close enough for me to see or know. Maybe he took his romance and out to the bigger field, far from prying eyes and earshot of his lovemaking. We did find two more cows all tore up and surrounded by burn marks, though. That's still the damnedest thing I've ever witnessed with these two old eyes. And I can tell you, I've seen some things in my life, so that says a lot. <laughs> now you know it's one of my favorite and most bizarre creature encounters ever heard. UFOs, mating cows, and uh, Bigfoot. I don't know what to make of it, but if you have a strange story, a true encounter with the unusual, you can email it to me, Dave, at paranormal sixty. Dot com. That's Dave at Paranormal60.com. That's Paranormal60.com. Uh, if you have a, a question that you'd like me to answer on an upcoming episode or see if I can find one of my experts to answer, you can also email that question to me and we will make that a part of the program. Uh, and if you have a question, you can also do it in a video form. So if you have one question, just shoot me that video. We might air it here on the program. Remember to film it in landscape. All right, my friends, stay tuned. We've got more of the best in paranormal podcasting coming your way. I'm Dave Schrader, and you're listening to the Paranormal 60.
Welcome back to the program. Thank you again to Chad Lewis for joining us. Jamie Kaler, actor and comedian, will be here a little bit later with upon further review. Uh, I do want to mention, my little darklings, if you're tired of just sitting by idly watching TV and listening to shows like this to to put your mind in the perspective of what it's like to actually get out there and investigate, that I encourage you to become part of the action. You can do that with our upcoming event on Memorial Day weekend. Paranormal 60 presents Fully Committed, the Randolph County Asylum Paranormal Conference and investigations. I'll be there along with author and researcher Jeff Belanger, who has been the writer from Ghost Adventures since episode one, a longtime friend of the show and a prolific author himself. Shane Pittman is joining me from the Holzer Files to be part of the investigation. Kitsy Duncan, the host of of uh, Oddities podcast will be uh, with us as well. She's a fellow researcher and investigator and joining us for her first appearance at a paranormal conference, Stormy Daniels. She is a lifelong paranormal investigator and experiencer. She's turned it more serious in the last two years as she's living in a haunted house in New Orleans. She has a haunted doll named Susie. She takes with her on investigations. So she's going to come on board, tell us some strange stories of the supernatural throughout her life, and she'll be a part of the ghost hunts and hopefully Susie Susie, the doll, will be able to help us connect with the spirits inside Randolph County Asylum. You can get more information about that at darknessevents.com. That's darknessevents.com. But maybe you're tired of the United States. Maybe you want to expand your horizons. Then join me in Egypt Obscuro, our Schraders of the Lost Ark event taking place February 12th through the 23rd of 2023. Uh, 12 days, 11 nights. We're going to get a chance to see some of the most amazing sites in history and investigate claims of the paranormal. As a matter of fact, we have access to two of the pyramids that we will be able to access for a full-on paranormal investigation. Special appearance by Tracy Ash, the Ascension Timeline Metaphysics Egyptologist uh, and uh, author. She's going to be with us. Again, you can get information by going to darknessevents.com. Scroll down the page till you find the banner, click it, and uh, we're already half sold out on that trip, so I hope that you'll join us. All right, joining us now, uh, this is one of my favorite guests. He was one of the first to come on and break the black-eyed kid phenomena, the black-eyed children story. David Weatherly is our guest, another longtime friend, as I said, who always comes prepared with fresh new stories that I've never heard of. And today, we're introduced to the vampire beast of Bladenboro, a terrifying creature that has held a town in chaos. And before we talk with David, let's take a quick look at the trailer for his upcoming documentary. On the southeastern edge of the North Carolina Piedmont lies the small town of Bladenboro. Incorporated in 1903, Bladenboro is a snapshot of small town America. In the 1950s, the community faced a unique threat a series of strange animal attacks that struck fear and panic amongst the townspeople and left an enduring mystery in its wake. The goat was laying down like this and the tip end of his nose were, was bit off. He believed in the beast of Bladenboro and it was not a mountain lion or coyotes or anything but that it was a far larger predator. I know one fellow here, he's 94 years old and he was right in the middle of all this, the hunting and all the uh, people coming from all over the country here to, to kill the beast. It was a scary time for Bladenboro. It terrorized everybody in Bladenboro. Pretty much, I mean it scared people. It was a panicked, fearful environment. 
I'll put it that way. Well, I don't believe in the supernatural too much, but it's something about this seemed to be supernatural. The goats and stuff, I mean, it's one thing to kill an animal, but not to suck the blood out of their animals. There are aspects to this legend that are somewhat troubling and, and puzzling at the same time. The primary one being the mysterious loss of blood that occurred during these attacks. And there are no known animals that will suck a corpse dry. They came convinced it was some type of vampire type animal coming up out of the swamp. I think it was a beast as big as you ever seen in your life. My grandfather was not scared of nothing and he was scared of that. We don't know what happened to it, where it went, but we know it came. This is the tale of the Beast of Bladenburg. David Weatherly is a Renaissance man of the strange and supernatural. He has traveled the world in pursuit of ghosts, cryptids, UFOs, magic, and more. And David, I was today years old when I found out about this story of the Beast <laughs> of Bladenboro. We got a little taste of it from the trailer. Can you fill me in on this story? This is bizarre. It's a very bizarre story, Dave. And, um, you know, just as sort of a, a prelude before we go into this, a couple of things I want to say. Uh, this story has, it took place in the 1950s. And people have looked at it periodically. You know, it showed up on an old episode of Monster Quest and a few other things. And sadly, this is a case that people often dismiss and say, oh, well, it was a uh, mountain lion attacks. It was, you know, it was a Carolina panther. And while on the surface, we could say that's a good possibility. There are some very bizarre aspects to this uh, series of attacks. And the other thing is sort of way of introduction. You heard a little bit in the trailer uh, bear in mind, this this is a very different era in America. You know, this is the early 1950s. This is small town America, man. This is Mayberry. Uh, okay. This is, you know, this is a slice of Americana. People, you know, everybody knows everybody. Uh, there are no big box stores. There's no cell phones or Internet or computers or anything like that. World War II is a recent memory. So uh, that's just to give you an idea of, you know, the nature of the community at the time that these things begin to occur. So December 29, 1953, uh, there is a sighting of this creature actually in the nearby town of Clarkton. That's about eight and a half miles from Bladenboro. Uh, a woman hears her dogs whimpering outside. She knows something's wrong. She goes outside to see what, what's wrong. And she spots this, uh, what she describes as, as a big cat, you know, something in in the range of a mountain lion, and it takes off when it sees her. A few days later, December 31st, the creature shows up in Bladenboro, and this is really the beginning of a series of attacks that, that put this town on edge. A couple of dogs are attacked at a farm just outside of Bladenboro, and the owner said that they, were, they put up a fight with whatever the creature was, but the dogs were torn to ribbons. And of course, uh, he's very upset he's, that he's lost his animals. Uh, nobody knows what to think of it initially, but things don't slow down. The next day, January 1st, 1954, there's another attack. January 2nd, more dogs are attacked. January 3rd, another pair of dogs are killed. So this thing is unrelenting. January 3rd is a turning point because now law enforcement has gotten involved. The attacks have been reported. They want to know what's going on. 
The chief of police shows up at the site of the attack on the third, looks the animals over and decides to have an autopsy done to see if they can determine what exactly has attacked these animals, right. because it's not like anything he's ever seen before. This is where it starts to get very bizarre because the autopsy shows that the animal was pretty much completely drained of blood. Now, there's no blood at the scene other than, you know, some that's on the corpses of the animals. Now people are getting very concerned, obviously, and mystified to a degree because, you know, while this could seem like a, a normal predator of some kind, uh, what comes out and, and drains all the blood out of a corpse and, and doesn't really, you know, do a lot more damage. The, the dogs, uh, they had severe damage in terms of the one of them's lower jaw had been ripped off. Uh, an ear was gone. Their, both their tongues were gone. Uh, so this is just bizarre aspects to these attacks. And small community, again, everybody knows about it by now. So people are really wondering what exactly is going on in Bladenboro. Now, David, obviously they've dealt with mountain lions, cougars, panthers, whatever you want to call it before. Was there something a lot different regarding these attacks that, that made them believe this is something much more and, and much more terrifying than just a mountain lion? Well, so that's the thing. Uh, officially, even at that time, there were no, uh, it would have been called a panther in that region. There was a Carolina panther uh, at one point, but officially those were uh, extinct. You know, they didn't really exist. Uh, the closest thing would have been the Florida panther. So, of course, officials, you know, some of them wanted to dismiss it and say, no, no, it's just, you know, it's probably a wild dog or coyotes or something like that. But when you start looking at some of the legends from the area, uh, some people believe that there was a surviving populace of wolves living uh, outside of Bladenboro. This town, you know, it's a very forested area. There's a, a large area just outside of town that they call uh, the creative name of the big swamp, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a, it's a big swampy area. Uh, there were people who swore that there were uh, wolves that lived deep in that swamp. So, you know, those things combined, uh, nothing like this had really happened in Bladenboro before and e even in the region before that had been on record. And the bizarre, the brutal nature of the attacks, first of all, concerned people deeply. And also the bizarre aspect of all the blood being gone. You know, this uh, this did not appear to be an attack by anything that they were familiar, you know, with previously. Uh, obviously, if a, a pack of coyotes, for instance, came in and, and attacked an animal, I mean, they're going to tear it to pieces and eat it, uh, you know, or drag the corpse off. So uh, the the things that were showing up on these animal corpses, they were just mystifying. And things got even stranger the following day, January 4th, because uh, the paper reported that there had been a sighting the previous night by a young man who said, oh, he saw the creature. And several people had seen it at this point. And they were describing uh, something along the lines of a big cat. Uh, this young man says he saw the creature. It was a large cat with a long tail but it wasn't alone. There was a second smaller one with it running along beside it. Now we have a new twist that's come in. In the midst of this, more people are, are spotting the beast, but none of the descriptions completely match. The only thing that's really consistent is that people are saying it has a long tail. Uh, 
and they're describing a tail like you would see on a, a mountain lion or a panther. Uh, some people say it's black. Some people say the thing is brown and, and fuzzy like a bear. Some people say that it's uh, gray. Some people say it's solid black. You get all these variations in the stories. And which has to be frustrating as an investigator, right? Because then you wonder, is somebody just trying to involve themselves in this history and, and insert themselves into, well, yeah, I've seen it too. And all of these weird kind of conflicting tales for, you know, pop up. Right. Yeah, that's, that's true. And of course, you know, this was a time that everything's obviously by word of mouth and by the newspaper. Um, so, you know, people are hearing stories and maybe repeating stories and maybe saying, oh, well, I saw something like that. Uh, maybe they saw some, some real animal, but you know, the, the fear is starting to is starting to build in this little community, and what happens is is that uh, around this time, the national media gets a hold of the story. So newspapers from all over start printing accounts of the beast of Bladenboro. They're now calling it the Vampire Beast of Bladenboro because of the they pick up obviously on the loss of blood, right? And this. This causes a different turn in the story. In the midst of this, on the 5th, the night of the 5th, the, the attacks take on a different possibility, if you will. A woman named Miss C.E. Kinlaw uh, is in her home when she hears her dogs who are outside whimpering. She goes out on the porch to see what's wrong and she spots this massive cat. The cat is stalking her dog. She describes it essentially as, as a panther-like beast. It's clearly stalking her dogs. However, when Kinlaw comes outside, it turns its attention on her and rushes towards her. She screams, <laughs> which uh, does two things. It gets the attention of her husband who's inside, and it also causes the cat to spin around and retreat and run off the property. Uh, husband has run outside with, you know, seeing what's wrong with his wife. She tells him about the incident. The authorities are called. Now, now there's a whole different potential here because it's clear that this creature is not just interested in stalking livestock or pets, but it's also not afraid of humans and could potentially attack people. So, yeah, that definitely amps up the danger value, doesn't it? Because it, it does. Absolutely. If, if you've got animals, you read about it in the news all the time, bears, things that are starting to get too comfortable with people, they end up having to put them down. Uh, sometimes mm -hmm. they can relocate them to deeper aspects, but they seem to find their way back. Um, but again, I'm sure they'd seen wildcat attacks before, uh, you know, would, would most black panthers, panthers, things like that, would they leave carcasses the way they were being found or do they devour most of the meat or take them off and and share them with their their den well that's a that's one of the things that puzzled everyone was just the the very nature of the attacks and what was happening uh first of all the the thing that caught everyone's attention was the loss of blood you know all the blood's gone and um you know this is of course we're many years past these attacks which uh you know unfortunately i don't think we'll ever have a a completely defined answer for what was taking place during that time. But if you look at the nature of 
different known animals and how they attack and how they feed. It just doesn't match with any of them. Uh, like I said, at the start of the, the show, you know, there's been so many people have looked at the case and said, oh, that was, you know, it was some panther attacks. It was a rogue uh, panther mountain lion that came in and uh, attacked these creatures and then left the area. But it really doesn't match that either because a large cat is going to attack usually by ripping the throat out and it's going to pull the carcass away so that it can feed on it. Uh, the, these attacks, you know, is one after another after another. And primarily what's gone is the blood. And that's just, that's bizarre. Uh, so, you know, that's that's why the thing was dubbed the Vampire Beast of Bladenboro, obviously. This had to have just gripped the entire town in terror to, to have these kind of attacks and that they're not one-off attacks, but that they're actually getting more aggressive and now showing that even humans might be part of their food chain. Is that, and that's the thing, Dave, is that, you know, first of all, people were upset. They're losing their, their pets. And, you know, there's rumors of other livestock attacks and so forth, which that's people's livelihood. Right. So, you know, this is really affecting this community. But when when Kinlaw was rushed uh, by this creature, it did take on a whole different atmosphere. And of course, the national media loved it. You know, now there's this massive right. story or there's there's this creature, this unknown creature in North Carolina, this remote town that not many people know about, you know, prior to this. So now, man, things are really changing and things are about to change even more because the national media attention did something else. It got the attention of wannabe monster hunters all over the country. Now, Bladenboro at the time, uh, 1953, 1954, uh, it was a small community. The, the 1950 census showed a population of just under 800 people. Okay. In that first going into the second week of January, 1954, hunters started flooding into the area. Now, there had been a couple of small hunts. The chief of police himself had gotten a few men together, took a small posse and went into the swamp trying to track this creature down. Uh, a few other local hunters had tried. But now you've got a story that's circulating from California to New York. And right. people are saying, oh, I'm, you know, <laughs> you've got everybody. Saying, I'm going to go bag that creature. And, and right. you know, there, there was one of my favorites is there was a, a group of fraternity brothers from uh, I believe it was Chapel Hill who rolled into town determined to, to bag the beast of Bladenboro so they could mount it on the mount the head on the wall of their fraternity. <laughs> so, you know, everybody has these different motivations, but here's the thing, Dave, within a short time, there were some estimates say a thousand hunters in Bladenboro. There were more hunters in Bladenboro than there were residents. There was even a headline in the paper that said, uh, Something to the effect of vampire hunters now outnumber residents in Bladenboro. Imagine, imagine living in this little town and suddenly you've got armed men roaming around the streets in your backyard everywhere. I mean, I that's got to be that's going to be more terrifying because you don't know how nutty these guys are. They're going to start shooting at each other by accident. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. I mean, you know, some of these people, uh, you know, I'm sure. And I, I know for a fact, some of them were veteran hunters, 
But let's face it, you know, some of these guys are complete yahoos, maybe never fired a gun before. Right. And, you know, they're wandering around all of a sudden with with a loaded, you know, shotgun or 30 out six or whatever. And, you know, the the tension and the, the pitch of fear in that town. I mean, these guys, they're apt to fire at anything. And of right. course, they're wandering around the swamp, which is where a lot of the uh, people believe this thing lived. Some of the tracks even indicated that's where it was going. But these these hunters, they're roving all throughout town and everything else, too. So, you know, you've got suddenly a very different environment. Uh, I've spoken to people who were kids in Bladenboro at the time, and they talk about, you know, well, you know, mama didn't allow us outside. You know, we uh, basketball games were canceled, you know, wow. all, all of these things. You know, we couldn't do it because... Uh, one, because of the beast, and two, because there's all these hunters you know, walking around with loaded guns. That's crazy. <laughs> the documentary, again, The Beast of Bladenboro. We have a link for it in today's guide and uh, information. David, before we we say goodbye, I know you're working on a great book series. Kind of tell people uh, a little bit about it, and we got to have you back in a month or so, and let's talk about some other really weird cryptid creatures and and. Uh, kind of unsolved mysteries that you've been on the on the hunt for but tell us a little bit about the book series absolutely so a couple of years ago uh this kind of arose from a conversation i was having with someone who said to me well there's not really any cryptids in nevada and uh i kind of chuckled and i said well sure there are and i named you know half dozen off the top of my head and they said well no you know nevada's all it's just aliens and ufos but there's maybe maybe one or two sightings well, just uh, one of those things, I guess, with me, you know, I went home, I started looking through my files and thought, wow, there's a lot of, here's, here's an account I forgot about, here's something else. So I wrote this book. I didn't know if anyone was going to be interested, to tell you the truth. It's called Silver State Monsters, uh, Cryptids and Legends of Nevada. And it got such a huge response. Uh, I, I kind of rolled right over after that and did, uh, in short order, Copper State Monsters, which was Arizona. And then I started getting flooded with with people saying, are, are you, you know, what's the next state? Are you going to do all 50? <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. States, you know? So uh, I'm up to, oh, number nine was just announced, which will be out early March. It is um, be, uh, Beehive State Monsters. It's Utah, Cryptids and Legends of Utah, which, of course, includes the Bear Lake Monster, the creepy Skinwalker Ranch and lots of other things. And. People are just really responding to this series at this point. Uh, you know, the goal is to get all 50 done. Right. And uh, it, each one is kind of an old fashioned bestiary. It, it examines the folklore. It, it uh, you know, my forte is that of sort of an investigative journalist. I, I've always went out and, and, you know, talked to the people and went to the locations and investigated myself. So that's really what the foundation of the book is. And mm -hmm. I delve into the, pioneer accounts, Native American legends, all the way up through, you know, current encounters that awesome. people are having with these uh, various cryptids in each state. Well, we've got those books already pulled together for you, folks. If you go to uh, paranormal60.com and then click on the store tab, it'll take you in. Just scroll down to you see my Amazon storefront. Click on it, go on in, and you'll see the paranormal book section. We've got those books lined up, and as each one comes out, we'll add it to make sure that it's available for you as well. David, it's always great catching up with you, man. Thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, good talking to you, Dave. The Beast of Bladenboro, the documentary is out. We do have a link for that on today's program guide as well as the book links as well. All right, folks, listen. 
this has quickly become a very popular segment on the show. People uh, seem to like our upon further review, my movie review segment, where I I have one of my friends watch a movie of my choosing and report back to it on uh, what they thought of this movie. And, And this one, this one's a doozy. All right, so joining us today, actor, comedian from My Boys to Coma FD and Ghost Hunt Live. Ladies and gentlemen, help me welcome my good pal, Jamie Kaler. Hello, Jamie. Hey, Dave. How are you, brother? I'm doing great, buddy. I appreciate you coming on to do this because I I love my friends. And I know you guys love entertainment and movies. And having had a chance to co-host the... Uh, the Salem live event, we had a time to riff in between scenes and talk about our favorite horror movies and things that really get our juices going. And I knew when I saw this movie trailer, this was definitely going to be a project that, that I would only trust in your hands. So before we get started, let's, let's let the audience get a little taste of the movie you got to watch. world within our world there is a world unlike any other world when earth and space collide It will be explosive. It will get messy. It will be dangerous. Look out! You can run, but you cannot hide. Many of our friends have perished. The greatest movie in the world. We will avenge them and we will win this wrestle between Earth and space. Lamageddon. Do you think all premium fuels are the same? Well, your engine doesn't. Shell V Power Nitro Plus helps keep your engine running like new because it's engineered to defend against four main engine threats. Gunk, wear, corrosion, and friction. So next time, choose Shell's most advanced fuel ever. It's fuel for thought. In engines that continuously use Shell V Power Nitro Plus premium gasoline. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Lamageddon. How could seeing that trailer, how can you not think this is going to be an amazing trip into humor and and dark comedy land? Well, I'm so thankful you sent me this. It was like a piece of gold. I didn't even know. It was like if you didn't know what gold was and somebody showed you a shiny rock and you were like, I don't know what that is, but it's fantastic. This I'm going to tell you, this is the greatest achievement in film of all time. And here's why. Because. The fact that they made this movie um, shows how how humans are capable of amazing things because it's like if I said to you, like if you took someone who was totally illiterate and had never read or written a word in their life, and then they came to you and said, I wrote a book. 
you'd be like, what? Right. It's kind of like that. Um, first of all, for a feature film, running time usually has to be at least 90 minutes. But these guys, they're so good at storytelling that they got the whole thing done in one hour, eight minutes. That's it. You don't, the extra 22 minutes isn't going to help anybody. And they knew that. And they were smart enough. They said, well, feature's supposed to be 90. They said, we don't need it. Which is, you know, great because I my major complaint with most Hollywood movies is I love this movie, but it was about 15 to 20 minutes too long. This one, not so much. Not <laughs> Well, still maybe. Still maybe. It could have been a short, shorter film. But here's what okay. I'll also argue. If I told you, listen, we don't have a script. We don't have any pe anybody who can act. Uh, we don't have money. Can you make a film? Somebody did, and that's this guy, and he made Llama Geddon. He goes, well, we don't have any props. We got a llama in the backyard. <laughs> Boom, and they're off and running. And I think it's one of the greatest achievements in filmmaking of all time, that, that, that this was made, and it's fantastic. In its Amazon Prime, folks, if you have Amazon Prime, you can watch it free, and you still might be overpaying just a little. Just a scooch, just a scooch. Um, not much, uh, but listen, you know, I would have loved to have been at the premiere to go like, hey, look at you guys. You made a film. Um, and here's what's great. Obviously, no one had not even act. It seemed like no one in the film had ever acted before. But also, it seemed like not one of them had ever even stood in front of a camera and let their face be recognized on film because they it was. But the, the great thing about not being able to act is that when the words of the script Really, it was like someone had never spoken English before and just put letters in order and they said those words and you're like, you know, good for you. You did it. So this is basically uh, the evolution of the hundred monkey theory. They just put a hundred monkeys in hammering at typewriters and out came in cinematic classic in Lamageddon. And here's also here's the here's where creativity actually took off, because there were some shots in there. Um, the opening scene is about. Um, the llamas coming from outer space. They're outer space llamas. They only are taking the shape of llama, but they are creatures from an alien world. By the way, on paper, I'm sure the screenwriter was like, this is huge, gonna be a huge, you know, special effects budget. They didn't have any money. So a guy drew it. And they said, well, look, we can't shoot this. It's too much money. And some guy said, well, what if, what if I just draw it with crayons? And then we show that and the guy goes, boom. And they did it later when the dude changes into a llama I don't want to. I don't think it's a spoiler alert. He gets uh, he gets raided by the uh, llama, and then he turns into a llama. And then the same way they go, look, we want to make this like American um, werewolf in London, right? Right. And he changes in, and he starts to. But obviously, they were like, well, this is this is going to cost a lot of money. And the other dude goes, hey, I still have some more paper and crayons. What if I just draw? And that goes back to animated cartoon for the uh, for him changing into the llama. Brilliant. It worked, it worked great for Aha in their take on me video, why not incorporate that into a horror movie? And you could tell they were AHA fans, I felt like, um, in the same way that AHA doesn't really speak English either. I don't think anybody here spoke English. So in the, in the same, honestly, could have been made by AHA. I don't know what they're <laughs> doing now, but they might be making movies. And if they did, it might be LAHA Mageddon. Uh, well, Jamie, I want you to know that it's inspiring words like that that let me know that that filmmakers out there shouldn't quit. And apparently these guys feel the same way because our next movie oh. for you, our next movie for you, Jamie, Alpocalypse, uncut yep. 
and uncensored terror in 3d death marches on hooves of evil fear the fur so you just tell me when and dude that could be your next review it's obvious this is a whole franchise happening because llamas and alpacas we know they don't get along they're similar in animals but they are from different parts of the world and so i mean obviously like alien versus predator i would feel like the llamas and alpacas are heading towards a confrontation good god do you see well, it's good. Right? We'll start that arc, build slowly. Maybe by the time the third movie comes around, it'll be up to an hour, 10 minutes. Yeah. Here's what I also loved about this film. Obviously, you can save a lot of money when you don't do makeup. Right. You don't worry about sound. Mm. You don't worry about hair. You don't right. worry about wardrobe. It's like, uh, what am I wearing? What if, I don't know. Whatever. What, that's fine. You look great. Not about the character. But here's what I also take. And it, it's honestly, I, I feel like they challenge themselves. A lot of times, you know, you see... Stanley Kubrick or Spielberg, they'll do the same scene and they'll shoot it how many times? 250, 300, right? right? The actor's board, it's over. What these guys said is, look, we're only going to shoot one take. That's it. Just one take. Whatever comes out, that's art. That's art to all of us. Mm -hmm. Why should we try to boil it down and, and change it? The first instinct is correct. So you can tell that they've never took a second take on any shot in the entire movie. It worked for Frank Sinatra. And why wouldn't they want to continue that amazing legacy? Yeah, I mean, the whole thing works as, as a unit. And um, obviously, I would argue also that um, the actors <laughs> uh, uh, never, here's what's great about them. Mm -hmm. They did it. Right. Lama out there, their creativity, they're probably all, they said, listen, other people probably came to them and said, fantastic let's have an acting career and the guy goes i mean i did it one take charlie i'm out and then so i don't think anyone in that movie is ever going to act again ever well i hear that they may be using the llama as an alpaca in alpacalypse so that one might translate um the llama's the to be fair llama was the best actor in the whole movie and um i think we i think we know that he had top billing, actually. The llama had top billing. At the end, it says introducing, and it had the llama's name. And uh, <laughs> art's everywhere. And when you don't look, like, you just look in your yard, and you go, oh, this squirrel's on my front lawn. Why not make a movie called The Squirrel Syndrome? Boom. Mm. It writes itself, which this yeah. guy obviously thought movies did because he didn't write a word. It seemed like it seemed like they were like, hey, do we have any sides for today? What are we saying? And he goes, Whatever you feel like, but you're only going to get one take. So whatever works. And then they did it and shot it, captured it, put it together in some form. And um, things are popping. Things are popping, Jamie Kaler. I know you're a big time actor and comedian, but I'm thinking, listen, off of the, the popularity of things like Sharknado one through five and people love squirrels. You brought that up. I think about out my window as I wash dishes, watching the squirrel environment. Would you be willing to step into the lead role of a new movie I would like to create? We'll call it Squirrel Wind. Things yeah. are about to get nuts. I did a one-man show a few years ago, um, and I could talk to squirrels. And uh, it was pretty, pretty well received. I did it, and it wasn't wasn't even in a theater. It was in the back of a coffee shop. They had like a little sure. like a little stage where people normally do poetry. But I had written this show, and it was actually it was like seven and a half hours long. I need to boil it down, but it was just me. And then I had two uh, taxidermied squirrels 
and it was like waiting for Godot, but it was more, we were waiting for an opossum to come. And then we talked about life and, and a lot of great stuff, but I, I'm, I'm still working on it. So maybe we can incorporate some of that. Let's let's we'll brainstorm. We're, we're, we're workshopping it right now. Here's what also one last thing. About the, <laughs> okay. Please. The final credits. Um, uh-huh. So they roll the credits. There's a great rap song. I don't want to wreck it, but it's probably pretty big. It goes, Lama get it. I'm a Lama get it. And while they scroll the, um, you know how sometimes they'll show like outtakes or they'll show um, like this actor played this person or whatever and something original. They didn't do that. They showed the entire movie fast forwarded next to the credits as they rolled. It was literally the exact movie in a smaller frame, fast forwarded through all 108 minutes of it. Nothing changed. And to me, I was like, at first I was like, wait, I just watched that movie. But what they're doing is sending you out the door. One little last taste of like, we know you loved it. We know you think this is the greatest film of all time. Let's give you a condensed version just to emblazon onto your brain so you'll have this for the rest of your life. And so I watched it again in speed version during the closing credits. And I don't know, it's, it's on the top of my list now of like, you know, he did they it. They got into your head. They got into your head. Yeah. Speaking of getting into your head, ladies and gentlemen, aside from being a stand-up comedian and great TV actor, movie actor, every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Pacific time, you can join host Jamie Kaler and his partner Jason Gowan as they are joined by celebrity moms and dads to talk all things parenting. And this weekly comedy oasis will remind you we're all in this together. So grab a drink and have a laugh. All right. Today, we learned a valuable lesson. The outdoors, well, they suck. They're just filled with things that want to eat or kill you. Lions, tigers, bears, and apparently even laser-eyed llamas from outer space. They're just the tip of this icky iceberg, my friends. Just, just the tip. So should you venture out to the not-so-great outdoors in search of beauty and vistas as far as the eye can see? Be aware that as the great poet Brett Michaels said, Every rose has its thorns, and these thorns slither, fly, stomp around, and eat our livestock, and perhaps even us. Oh, sure, sure, I know what you're thinking, that this world is filled with gorgeous scenery, breathtaking views, but folks, it's a dangerous, bitey, pointy, horrible place outdoors. So stay home, and remember, if God wanted you to go outdoors, he would not have invented TV, the Discovery Channel and Josh Gates to live vicariously through. Yes, that's right. Yes, as usual, Dave, you are 100% correct. See you out in the world, or or not. Well, that's it for this week, folks. I'd like to thank our special guests, Chad Lewis, David Weatherly, of course, my buddy, Jamie Kaler, and the God that is Josh Gates. Special thanks to Bart L. for the fantastic Bartoon that we got to watch Strange Bedfellows. And thank you all for visiting the Paranormal 60, allowing me along on your journey. And may the darkness be just a little more light with the information that we shared here tonight. There is a time and a place for going outdoors. And that time is never, and that place is right here every Monday night. So make sure to like this video and podcast, subscribe, and tell everyone you know about it. We'll see you next week right here on the Paranormal 60 with Dave Schrader.